Hello everyone, welcome to the Venture Property Podcast. I'd just like to thank you all for listening to this podcast. I know that you might be driving, you might be at work, skiving, or doing what I do when I listen to podcasts and I walk around my city looking for deals. This week's podcast I am really, really, really excited about. We've got an absolutely great guest on this podcast, Nick Carlisle, and he is here to discuss pretty much every problem that I think property people have. And just speaking to him before we recorded this, I think you're going to absolutely love this podcast. I'm not going to give too much away here. I'm going to build that anticipation. So as always, guys, we are sponsored by realestateslackers.com, which, yes, is my free Slack group, but there's some cracking content in there. And if you want to get involved, you can just go to realestateslackers.com, fill out the form, and I'll get you in. So I'm not going to hang about. Let's get into the content. I'm so excited that we're going to cover this topic. I decided to get Nick on for a couple of reasons, really. The first being that when you join the Slack group, we always ask you what your biggest challenge in property is. And so many people, like so many people, have said that finding deals is their biggest issue, which sparked me to reach out to a few people and to get them on the podcast so that we could get their take on finding the deals. And I've been talking to Nick before this. He's an absolute legend. He really wants to give you guys some fantastic content. So without further ado, I'm now going to introduce the infamous Nick Carlisle. Hi, Nick. How are you doing today? Hey, Ryan. That's some introduction. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, it's uh, truly deserved. I know that a lot of people have a lot of respect from you. So why don't you start by giving these people and those people listening today a brief insight about you, how you started in property and the kind of things in which you do. Yeah, of course. And thanks um, thanks to everyone for listening. So um, some of you will have heard my story before, but I, I started investing in property at the age of 19 back in 1993. And the reason I got into property was because my dad had basically paid into a pension, traditional pension for 30 30 odd years of his life and, and got to retirement and, and found that the pension wasn't going to give him what he thought it should have or what the projection said. And, and it kind of ruined his retirement, really. And I remember thinking that if he just bought one other house um, back in the 70s, you know, not, not 10 properties a year or 50 properties a year or 100 properties a year like some of you guys are doing, if he just bought one other property in his entire lifetime and ran it as a buy to let that would have sorted his retirement out over the over the coming 30 to 40 years and so that's why I got involved in property so at the age of 19 I bought um, a, a fairly crappy terraced house in Barnsley um, I've kind of lost my Yorkshire accent now but I am a, a Yorkshire lad born and bred and um, bought my first terraced house in Barnsley paid £27,500 for it, spent five grand on it and sold it for kind of close to 40 and just repeated that for the next five years. And in the, in the, in the following five years I bought, I moved six times in, in five years. Um, one time we moved next door but one because we were living in a property that we were doing up and the next door but one house came up and so we, we kind of carried our furniture across the pave, you know, across, down the pavement. 10 yards and, and moved into that house. Um, I then started to get tuned into 
um, not selling properties and kind of hanging on to them. And, and that's really where I started to build a portfolio. Um, I was training as a quantity surveyor, uh, which for those of you that don't know, is, a, is kind of a mixture of a, a, an accountant, a lawyer and a project manager for construction. And so alongside that, I was, I was, um, I was doing that job um, and I was doing property as a, as a hobby. So I would, I would do DIY. I would, I would find the deals. I would manage the properties myself and um, then started to move into doing self builds, doing development, um, did a little bit of overseas stuff when, um, you know, 2006, when the market in the UK was really kind of um, really toppy and you couldn't find deals. And, and, and that frankly was a bit of a disaster. We, we went overseas into, um, into places like the Czech Republic and, and Romania. And when the credit crunch came, those countries really suffered. And, and, and we've still got some property over there, some land that we bought that, um, you know, it might be another 20 years before that, that comes, comes back. But, um, that brought us back to the, to the UK and we started helping, um, other people buy HMOs. And some of you will know the business that I, I set up back in 2004 and we were, we were training people on HMOs. And then alongside that, we were buying very dull, very boring, single family lets in Yorkshire. And between 2010 and 2014, which was the peak of our buying period, we bought 474 properties. So in four years, just over four years, 474 properties. And we had a real sausage machine. It was a great system. We, you know, we were finding deals. We were um, taking care of the refurb. We were taking care of the funding. Um, you know, we were managing the properties. We had our own letting agency, which we still have. And then... Um, Towards the end of that period, I started to to kind of see the just the constant attack really on buy to let landlords, and I know some of you are, are kind of facing this, and and you know we were finding it harder to find deals. Um, there was additional legislation adding to the costs of being a landlord, and then um, stamp duty came, and 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 the final nail in the coffin was really the the section um, the clause twenty four uh, tax, which which affects um, your profitability. And so we started to look elsewhere for yield because we're, we're yield investors. We, we believe in buying for income rather than capital growth. And, uh, and so we, we now buy, we still buy some residential properties, but our main portfolio consists of hotels. And that's what we, um, that's what we spend our time on. So it, we've kind of leaped over serviced accommodation. I know there'll be a lot of people listening that are into the serviced accommodation. And I think that's a, an interesting strategy. We, we jumped over that into hotels. Um, but as Ryan says, throughout that 23 year career and um, certainly the last 15 years, I've spoken on, on most property events, hundreds of property events um, you know, there's only ever two questions that I ever really get asked constantly. And one is, how do I find deals? And the second is, how do I fund deals? Um, so when Ryan says that, you know, I'm going to solve every problem that you've got, I think that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting um, quote to say. But I think that most people um, in property have those two have one or of those two problems and it's how do I find deals and how do I fund deals and and so my 
my latest book, The Deal Creator, addresses that. And, um, you know, a free copy to anyone that, that kind of contacts Ryan. Um, and, 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 you know, happy to give that, that, that to, um, to anyone that's listening. That's, that's absolutely great. And I think that's going to be a massive resource for, for so many people. And you've got so much experience. That's just, just amazing. I love hearing stories like that, especially ones that are linked to family as well. My, my story is linked to family as well, my dad especially. And uh, yeah, just absolutely love hearing stuff like that. So I'm not going to harp on. I'm going to let you break into the content and I'm going to stay quiet now. And I'm going to let you describe methods, give some content, whatever you want to go into, however best you feel you can deliver that content, you go for it. I'm going to probably jump in a couple of times and just ask, ask you a few questions. So over to you, Nick. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. So I'm going to, um, I'm going to base the, um, the content loosely around the book. Now, you know, the book's got 40,000 words in it and it'll be published um, before the end of the year. So I'm going to just dip into um, the, the kind of contents of the book. And so the book's about, um, as I said, how to find deals and how to fund them. And, and what I've tried to share in there is, is actual live examples, real examples of how we've created deals. And the, the reason, the, the, the thread that runs through the book and the thread that runs through my 23 years of property investing, most of those years being reasonably successful, um, is this idea that, that deals are created and they're not found. And so if I think about every deal that I've ever done, I can't think of a single deal that, that landed on my desk or in my inbox that was nice and neatly packaged in the way in which I ultimately did the deal. And so creativity in property is extremely important. And it's not, you know, people are looking, people are going around looking for deals that are nice and neatly packaged with a bow and a label that says this is a deal. And in my experience, those things don't exist. And so in order to find deals, you have to find a few ingredients and then create a deal. And so when I talk about ingredients, we all know about motivated sellers um, and trying to find out what is their real motivation so you can create a deal around, um, around what they ultimately want to, want to achieve. Um, you know, you have to create a win-win situation. You have to solve problems if you're going to do deals. Um, but all too often I, I meet people who say, um, you know, I can't find deals in my area. And I think that's nonsense to be honest. There are obviously more deals in some areas than in others, but um, we always gave advice to people who wanted to be active, that if they wanted to be active in property, then they should do that as close to home as they possibly could. And I think that I could go to any area in the UK and find deals and create deals because um, there's enough motivated sellers. Motivated sellers are not just restricted to being up north or restricted to being um, in the cheaper areas of the country or restricted to being outside London. They're everywhere. Yep. Um, but you have to put yourself into 
the deal flow. You have to be out there. You have to be known to the agents. Um, and you have to be known as someone that, that, that can do deals. And so, as I said, most of pretty much every deal that we've done, we've created in some way. And so let me give you a, 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 a real um, live example of, of, a, of every recent deal that we did um, no more than six months ago. And this is a hotel deal, but I want you to ignore the fact that it's a hotel deal and try and take the principles out of how we created the deal. So we met, I'll change the guy's name so that um, we met Mark who was running a hotel. Okay, he actually had two hotels, one um, close to his home and one that was 250 miles away. Um, and this was a hotel, the hotel that, that, we, um, that was 250 miles away, we actually looked at um, a year before and it was, it was too overpriced for us, um, partly because of the amount of work that was needed. Um, Mark bought this hotel and then decided he was going to spend £750,000 on it and ended up spending twice that. And where we could, from our experience, we could see that it needed one and a half million spending on it. He thought he could get it done for 750 and, and ultimately ended up spending what we, we thought it, it, it needed. Um, but he's now got an amazing looking hotel. I mean, it looks amazing. Um, trade starting to pick up. And then he has a heart attack. And um, the stress of managing that build project, the stress of um, traveling two and a half hours to run the hotel to keep an eye on the staff and, and the business just becomes too much for him. So straight away, you've got a massively motivated seller. Yeah. Um, but the hotel isn't worth what Mike, what Mark has, um, the hotel isn't worth what Mark has um, bought and spent on it. And so um, although he needs to sell it and he's motivated to sell it, he, um, you know, he knows it's not worth what he's bought and spent on it and he knows he's not going to get the money out of it. And so along come we and we say, right, okay, you got this problem, Mark. Um, you know, the hotel is not getting your attention. You're miles away. You've got health issues. Um, before too long, the staff are going to start stealing from you and the place is going to go backwards and the value is going to go backwards. So we will pay you exactly what you want for the hotel. We'll pay you the full asking price. And I'm going to come back to this, this idea of paying full asking price. So just, just park that there, Ryan, if you can remind me when I finish the story, just to come back to that. So we agree that we're going to pay the full asking price, but we're not going to pay the full asking price now because the hotel has just come out of a major refurb. It's just starting to pick up trade. And frankly, there's no way that we could fund it because hotels and lots of other properties are based on the income that are generated. So we say to, to Mark, what, what we'll do, Mark, is we'll pay you that full asking price, but we'll pay it in five years. And I know you've all done these kind of deferred consideration deals. Um, but in the meantime, what we'll do is we'll take the hassle away from you. You just go back to, to your, your hotel that's closed, get well, don't worry about it. From, from literally tomorrow, we will take over this hotel. We'll take the hassle away from you. We'll pay you your full asking price, but it's going to take us five years to get this to a place where we can um, ultimately finance it because the trade is there. And in the meantime, we'll pay you a rent. So it's a, it's a lease option deal. Yeah. He snaps our hand off because 
he's getting his money back, although he's had to wait for it. He's getting an income straight away. And basically, we what we then do is we take over his hotel. And um, if you think about what we've actually done there, so we've solved his problem, but we've just now bought, in inverted commas, because we, we've not actually physically completed yet, but we've secured another hotel without any of our own money. And all we've got to do is pay a rent to Mark, but the, but the profits that we're going to generate from the hotel are going to pay the rent to Mark. So he's basically given us his hotel. Um, we're going to pay him for it in five years' time, and then we're going to use the money from his hotel to pay him his rent. And the reason he's done that is because he's motivated to get rid of this monkey off his back. And um, so it's those kind of things that you, um, you need to look for and you need to be creative because when you – Everybody else that looked at that deal just saw an overpriced hotel in an estate agent's window. Yeah. Okay. And so it's about creating the deal. Now, the in order to do the deal, there's another party involved, which is the agent. So if you think about it logically, the agent doesn't get paid until the deal is sold. And the deal isn't actually going to be sold for five years. So you've got to win the agent over. And so in that situation, we agreed with Mark that we would, we would essentially treat it as if it was a sale. Um, And we jointly paid the agent so that, because if we didn't get the agent on board, we'd have, we'd have to convince the agent as well, who's acting on behalf of Mark, that what we were proposing was viable. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. That does. I, I've done a couple of those myself with the agent, and I've done exactly the same as you, where you've you've explained it to the agent that you're going to pay them up front, and it gets them on side. And don't and don't be afraid. I mean, we we've got we've got a number of agents um, out there that are that are retained by us, and it's all done above board. There's no money in brown envelopes. There's proper agreements. And they have to be very careful with, with, with not getting themselves into a conflict. So they have to declare it to vendors. But there's nothing to stop you having agents who are in the deal flow. I talk about this deal flow in the book a lot. You have to be in the deal flow if you're going to find or create deals. Because you have to be the person that the agent thinks about when he's walking around the property viewing it. You have to be um, the person that he thinks about when the price drops or when the vendor rings him up and says, look, you know, we've been on the market for three months and I just want to get rid of it. You have to be that person. So you have to be in their mind. Mm-hmm. And so there's nothing wrong with retaining agents and paying them a fee because all you do is you just factor it into the deal. You know, if a property is worth hundred thousand quid, um, but you've got to pay the agent 3000, then you just pay 97 for it. It's, you know, you just factor that as a cost of doing business into the doing the whole deals, but you can't be everywhere looking for every deal. And, and what I found with agents is like when we bought the 474 properties in four years, they were mainly in and around Barnsley in South Yorkshire. Now, if you were to walk through Barnsley, there's probably about 30 estate agents and, you know, it's easy, they're easy to find. They're like pack animals. They all sit on the same street you know next door to each other um and you can't you know it's, it's difficult to build a, a great relationship with all of those agents and so i would say that that 
um, 60% of all of those properties that we bought came through agents and 90% of, of the properties that we bought through agents came from three agents only. So it's worth building brilliant relationships with a small number of estate agents rather than trying to build a mediocre relationship with every agent in town. Does that make sense? Because yeah. they're the ones that will ring you and say, look, I've got another deal for you. Um, and, you know, you just have to keep going until you to you build that relationship with those agents and um you know friday afternoons taking them out for lunch asking them what what deals they've got is a great way to do that exactly i'm a i'm a huge huge fan of of that and quite a few things that you've said there the, the close to home thing for me i do exactly the same i know that some of the listeners will be asking about going into to newer cities or the city in which they're in and there's a lot of agents which you do exactly what I do with a smaller group of agents to pick a, a couple of agents. What would you advise somebody to do on how to pick those agents to target initially? Um, if you want, so it depends what kind of properties you're looking for. So, um, you know, if, if there's usually, so I, I was doing a little bit of mentoring in Banbury with a, with a, with a client, um, few weeks ago and he was looking for commercial properties and there's there's only a couple of commercial agents in um well there's quite a few commercial agents but there's there's like one main one so we focused on them if you're looking for repossessions then you know um there aren't so many repossessions out out there at the moment but that's a strategy that works um at various points in the property cycle so if you're looking for repossessions big lenders who ultimately repossess a lot of properties will use um they won't use independent agents they'll use um the sequence group for instance so if you're looking for repossessions then you need to build relationships with um the 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 um the agents that that get those instructions from the big lenders um if you want to find out who um has the uh, repossessions then I don't know if you've seen the the seven day notices that are advertised in the paper. So it will say, you know, such and such agent has received an offer of 65,000 for this property. Anyone wishing to increase it, um, um, you know, please do so within seven days. That's a repossession. So it's giving you the name of the agent there, but ultimately you've got to get out there and you've got to meet the agents and you've got to go into their office. And, and this is where I think a lot of people go wrong. So I see a lot of people um, that are trying to fake it till you make it. And I know um, having done most of the property courses out there, that's a phrase that a lot of the trainers say. And I think that, 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 that destroys credibility instantly. If you go into an agent and say, oh yeah, you know, we're, we're property investors and we're going to buy 50 properties in the next year they'll nod politely and they'll just put your card in the bin because they just think you're full of crap, basically. Whereas if you go in there and you say, look, you know, we're property investors, we're looking to buy, you know, numerous properties across an, a number of years, we want to build relationships. If you, if you buy two properties in a year from an estate agent, 
then you're already going to be in their top 10% of clients because most clients buy one property. If you buy five properties from an estate agent in a year, then you'll probably be in their top 5% of clients. So you don't need to fake it till you make it and oversell. You've just got to have credibility. And what I find with, um, with agents is it's, it's not about the estate agency. It's about the person. Yeah. So often I'll go into an agent where I really want to build up a relationship with, with that particular agent because I know that they get a lot of the kind of deals we're looking for. And you just meet someone, you know, you happen to, to the first person that comes across, let's call him Dave, and, and you just don't get on with Dave. There's no rapport there. You just don't kind of hit it off. He listens, but you kind of get the impression that he's not really listening. Yeah. Um, what you do is you just go back the next day and you try and meet Mike or Susie or whoever yeah. because it's it's the individual person in that agent that you need the, the the relationship with and um you know you can build better relationships with certain people over others so you just got to get out there and um you know I know one very successful property investor and it's something that I used to do every friday afternoon you know whatever um whatever I was doing um you know, would be given up to going and meeting agents and taking them for lunch. Yeah. Um, and there's a question you can ask agents. And in the course of an hour's conversation, you should ask this question probably 10 times. And it's what else, you know, um, what else have you got? Because if you sit down for lunch with an agent, you know, the agent um, isn't a computer spreadsheet. So you need them to tell you what else they've got. So during the course of the conversation, you need to ask that question, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 times and, and ask it in different ways because I guarantee, you know, just, just try this and maybe feedback to Ryan, whether this works, but you know, so you, you, you're having lunch and, and you're sat with, with Susan, who's the agent and, you know, thanks Susan for showing me that property. What else have you got? And, and she'll usually say, oh, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing else that you're looking for. And so you have a bit more lunch and um, you, you ask the question slightly differently, but it's still the what else question. You say, well, um, have you got any, any properties that have been on the market for a long time that just can't seem to sell? And maybe she has or maybe she hasn't. And, you know, the conversation flows a little bit more. And then you say, you know, have you met any vendors that are, that are particularly motivated at the moment? Or and 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 more conversation and and then you say have you got any just any difficult properties you know any properties that have got some difficult issues some title issues that i could maybe work on or some you know it's a complex situation and i guarantee absolutely guarantee that in the course of an hour if you do that in a in a in a fairly non-confrontational light-hearted way you will get that agent from the point of saying I don't have anything else to giving you some ingredients on which you can then work and create some deals. It happens every single time I've tried that. Um, I think that's a fantastic point. I it amazes people when people speak to me about where I actually find my deals and very, very similar to you, a big chunk of my deals come through agents and I focused on a couple of agents and narrowed down on, onto what I actually wanted. Um, 
So I, I picked those agents. I think that's an incredible point, which you've said for, for the listeners to go in and look at exactly what you want and then narrow it down. And that, yeah. that question, I know from my own experience, it works. Um, and then just asking it in different ways. And then you just get the, the slight nod on a deal. I think one of my favorite things that you've said already today is that deals are made. You have to actually make the deal, um, especially with, with the hotel deal. You know, that everybody had seen that, but it just took a different eye, a different way of looking at it, a different question for you to then go on and, and do that deal. I think that's, that's really amazing that you do that. I love that. I really enjoy it. Yeah, and I mean, on, on age, two points there, Ryan. And, um, you know, I mean, everybody, everybody seems to be running around looking for off-market deals. Yeah. And, and, I mean, great if you can find them. But how do you find them if they're off market? You know, they're just, they, they have to be on the market at some point. You know, 90% of the deals that I've done have been through agents. They've been on market deals. Now, the way to get off market deals is to do on market deals with agents. Exactly. The way to do off market deals is to be in that deal flow and to be the person that, that the agent is thinking about when he's walking around the deal and he's saying to the vendor, look, I think I could have this sold for you by the end of the week without it going to market because I've got Ryan over here who's bought four properties from me already and I know this is what he's looking for. Are you okay for me to give him a ring? And we'll save you some money because that's an off-market deal. But everybody's running around trying to get off-market deals, but, but there's nothing wrong with on-market deals. And then the other thing that you, you mentioned there is, is, is just expanding this this idea of deals being created and, and, and looking for that thread. So it, it might be a motivated seller like Mark in the hotel. It might be an underpriced property. And, um, you know, they do exist. I could give you another example of a care home that we bought in Bradford. When we, were, when we came out of buy to let, we were trying to find something else that was scalable, repeatable. And so we tried care homes and then we tried hotels and hotels kind of won for a number of reasons but in the course of doing that 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 exercise we bought a care home in in Bradford that was on the market for 500,000 and we paid 602 for it so we paid 20% more than the market because it was so massively underpriced now we sold that property two and a half years later for 1.67 so we it was on the market for 500 we paid 602 and we spent, we spent 150 on it, maybe 200 with stamp duty and all the rest of it. So we were in for 802 and we sold it for 1.67. So underpriced properties um, do exist. Um, could be a property with lots of options or it's complex or people can't get their head around what is the best thing to do with it. Again, when I was in Banbury, we saw this site that, that had just got so many variables. It was... Um, there was a building plot to build some houses. There was some existing buildings which had planning consent to convert. Um, there was a row of terraces on the front that, that some had been converted to HMO, some were single lets. Um, so it was a, a complicated deal that most people would just struggle to get their head around. Uh, one of the options was to flatten the entire site and, and build brand new on it. And so we, we looked at the numbers on all of those things. So, Properties that are complicated, properties that people have looked at 
like our hotel deal. Lots of people had looked at it and it was just overpriced. So as well as underpriced properties, everybody's looking for underpriced properties, overpriced properties. There's often a reason there. And like Mark, who couldn't accept a much lower price because of you know, the losses he was going to take, he was quite happy to, to wait for his money. And that allowed us to basically take the five-year lease option. Um, properties with a really poor layout. So you know, looking at layouts and how you can maximize the value there, particularly if you're um, looking for um, HMO properties or you're looking for one beds to, to turn into two beds, um, you know, poor schemes. So if you're looking at stuff that's got planning permission, quite often vendors who go for planning permission are just not skilled at getting the best out of the scheme. So you might have a scheme that's got planning permission for 10 units, but with, with the right team on board or you know, examining that scheme, you might be able to double the density of that to 20 units. Um, anything that's been on the market for a long time, there's usually a reason. Um, you know, there's usually some complexity in there, and that's, that's a thread of an ingredient. It's not a deal yet, but it's, it's a deal that can be created from that. Um, and then the, the, the timeless classic of the worst house on the best street. You know, buying the worst house on the best street is a timeless property investing strategy that never, ever goes out of fashion. Um, so if you're looking for a strategy to start with, you know, everybody's out there flogging the latest strategy of serviced accommodation or HMRs or yeah. PD or whatever. And, and they're fine, but there's lots of complexity in that. Just buying a rundown house in a very good area and basically refurbishing it to a high standard so you can bust through the ceiling price is a great strategy. It's a great way to start. And that, great. I, I, that's, that's something that, I, that we actually look at. Um, cause, and I think that that you're close to home as well because you know the area, you know those streets that are the best ones. Totally. I mean, there's a lot to be said. You, you, for knowing an area intimately yeah. is, is very valuable and it, it will stop you making quite a number of mistakes. Yeah. You know, if you do find that you have to travel, then you need to, you need to spend a lot of time there, I think, and, and really get to know the area. You know, when we were buying in Barnsley, we knew, you know, there's certain streets where, you know, the left-hand side of the street 80 grand house the right hand side of the street 50 grand same house just different side of the street or you know there's certain areas where you know on paper it stacks up but you just know that you're not going to get tenants because it just has such a bad reputation um so you have to kind of know or learn those areas and if you go into a brand new area um and i see this a lot i see people go to an area for a day and write it off because they can't find a deal in a day. And so they go to another area in a day or they, they heard the speaker talk about Stoke on Trent. And so tomorrow they're up to Stoke on Trent. And then the next speaker talks about Blackpool. And so they're off to Blackpool and, you know, there are deals to be done everywhere. Yeah. I think the disadvantage of traveling and having to learn an area and not being on hand to look at deals quickly is, 
is is a massive disadvantage over just um, being in an area where there maybe aren't quite as many deals, but there are enough to keep you going and, and you can learn the area and build those relationships. And, and it's easy to set the agent out for lunch on a Friday because, you know, you're 20 minutes away, not four hours. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I know that when I go out with the agents and they're talking to me, they actually say to me, oh, do you know this person? Uh, because they've come up, they want to be doing what you're doing, and, but they can only come up on a Saturday. And yeah. the agents know that. And that, that just gives such a, it's a, such a disadvantage. I was speaking to a, a young guy recently, actually, who was in an area down south, which he thought, and I'm very similar to you, there's deals to be found everywhere. And he said, oh, I just can't, can't do the deals down here. I just can't do them, so I'm off up to Stoke. It was miles away from his house. And when we were chatting, I, actually, I said to him, what, what do you do? And it turned out that he was a golf coach. And I said, all right, okay, so do you teach any agents to play golf? Yeah, loads of them. Right. Have any of them, have you told them that you're getting into property? Yeah, one of them showed me this deal. Right, okay. So is that deal on the market? Well, not yet. They're, they're looking at putting it on the market, but they, they showed me it and said if you wanted to get in on it. Wow. People, I think a lot of the time, it goes back to that close to home. You know people in your area that you don't even know that you know, basically. You know, you might walk into an agent and you've already got a relationship with somebody from something totally, totally crazy. I mean, a lot of the people in the agents now are all sort of my age. And they, they used to see me out drinking. So I go in there and they remember that we used to go out drinking and we did these stupid things. And it breaks that ice. Yeah. Oh, they're close to home, close to where you are. And I think as well, I don't know what you think on this. It might be good to get your take as well. That if you're doing a conversion or a refurb or a HMO, if you're close to that property, it's easier to manage that process. Oh, huge, massively, yeah. I mean, it's it's massively advantageous. I I don't believe there's, you know, I don't believe that there are any areas in the UK where there aren't deals. Now, you might be in an area which is too expensive for the money that you have to do the deal. That's slightly different. But even those, you know, you can create deal flow that, that maybe you can pass on to other people. But I think even if you live in London Borough of Kensington and Chelsea, within 30 minutes of there, there are deals to be done that, are, that can be done by most people. And, and so I don't, I don't think you need to travel, um, you know, far from home to, to find the deals at all. I just, I just don't. And, and, you know, so much time is wasted on that. So much time is wasted on chasing an area because, you know, you've heard someone talk about how great Blackpool is or, or Liverpool or wherever it is, yeah. is. And um, I think the disadvantage just outweighs, um, outweighs um, any difficulty that you might have in finding deals. Yeah, let's face it, those, those people are always going to lose those potential deals to us, aren't they? That's what's going to yeah. happen yeah. within the area. We have the relationship. Just See, anyone, anyone that says they can't find deals, here's the thing. They're not being creative enough. Exactly. Because as we said, deals are, deals are not found, they're created. 
Yeah. And so, you know, you, you have to have relationships with, with key people. You know, you don't, you don't have to go out tomorrow and try and build 20 relationships with agents. Just, just start with one. You know, get that to the point where they're passing your deals and then do another one. If you can build, you know, two great relationships with, with two great agents in a year, that'll supply you more deals than most people want to do. Yeah. You know, um, so, and then, you know, you have to be in that deal flow. You have to be the person to, you know, I mean, I, I have, so I don't know about any other phone, but like on the iPhone, there's a favorites yeah. on you when you put your phone on, you know, most people have their, their wife or husband or home or, mm-hmm. I have the agents because it just reminds me to ring them. And when I'm traveling in the car, I'll just check in. Hey, Mark, it's Nick. How are you doing? I'm doing great. You know, have you got any deals? No, Nick, there's nothing coming to market. Okay, how's the kids? You know, how's the wife? Um, All right, Mike, just before I go, have you got, you know, seen anything interesting really recently? No, not really, Nick. Okay, mate, you know, sorry, you know, maybe be in touch. What about, uh, what about that deal you mentioned, you know, four weeks ago that, that you were like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Because yeah. they're not computers. You, you have to prize it out of them sometimes. You have to, you know, or I'm going to see something this afternoon or, you know, I've just seen something, but I don't think it's right for you. That's something. They, they, they decide it's not right for you before you've even looked at it. And I'll say, well, just tell me about it. Oh, well, you know, the property's a bit overpriced. Um, the guy won't come down off the price. That's how we got that hotel. You know, the agent had kind of written it off because he knew that, that the guy wasn't going to sell it. Um, so you've just got to kind of tease that out of them. Um, the other thing that you have to be great at, two, two other things you have to be great at, is you have to have a system for analyzing deals quickly. Yeah. Like, you know, because you want to look at a lot of deals. You want to, you, you don't want to be, um, you know, you need to have a, a great first filter where you know, where you know whether a deal doesn't work, basically. So the first filter is to basically filter stuff into the bin or onto your, this might work pile. It's not, it's not a filter that says, yeah, we're definitely going to do the deal because yeah. you want to look at everything that comes to market and there just isn't enough time. And so, you know, once you, again, once you get to know an area intimately, this is the advantage of staying close to home or getting to know an area intimately, you'll know instantly just from looking at the details, that's too expensive. That's not big enough. Uh, there's no way I'll get six rooms out of that as a HMO. You know, there's too much work to do on that. Um, it's on the wrong side of the street. You'll just get to know that. Um, but having a first filter that, that allows you to, to basically put deals into the bin or on the maybe pile is critical. And again, I've got spreadsheets that will do this for people if, um, if you want to share them, Brian. I've got a HMO spreadsheet, I've got a development spreadsheet, and I've got a single deal spreadsheet. That was literally um, going to be my next question. What is your quick deal filter? And you've answered that for me. That's yeah. I mean, w- spreadsheets are great once you get, we, we tend to use spreadsheets for kind of the second stage, but particularly if you're starting out, it's worth running the deals through a spreadsheet. Yeah. The process of sitting down just for 10 minutes and plugging in the numbers will, will, will put into your subconscious brain 
the the key numbers that that you need to be looking at because you know i've been doing this long enough now i can i can usually look at a deal and say now maybe and then if it gets on the maybe pile we'll do it into we'll put it into a spreadsheet yeah i think Um, that's the way isn't it and that, I think that point is quite key that if you aren't used to this to actually sit down and just put some key numbers into a spreadsheet it actually teaches your brain and you the process of that so when a deal comes along automatically you might be out but you process that the same way your spreadsheet would in your brain and you go yeah. that's not going to work for me because of and if you're with an agent as well I found that when you can process that quickly and know exactly what you're after you can actually tell the agent why that isn't for you and then they remember that and then it's like you're building that it's all about relationships that's what it all goes back to it's a great point right that gives you massive credibility that you're not just um you're not just some muppet that'll take anything because here's the thing when you first walk into most agents if you're new yeah you have to be resistant to them trying to give you all the crap they can't sell because they will, because they've tried it on everybody else. So why not try it on you? And if you're in that fake it till you make it thing and they spot that, they might just think, well, here's a Muppet who I can sell this thing to that, that no one else wants. Yeah. I've spotted somebody buying deals that I've looked at and gone, how the hell, can that work? And they bought it at that price and they're from out of the area. Yeah. And you know full well what you said there is probably fake it till they make it and an agent has just come and gone, I can't sell this. I'll tell them that I, it's this, 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 and they bought it. Yeah, and that's the agent's job. You know, they're not, they're, they're, their role is to get the best price for their client. So, you know, you have to be aware of that. But But building that credibility is with the agents is, is, is critical. The other thing you can do, which I find works really well is, is rather than saying to the agent, Oh, that's not going to work because it's too overpriced. You just phrase it differently. So you say, Hey Mark, you know, you sent me that property. Um, I just can't get it to work because you know, the, the, the yield is 6% and you know, we look for 10 and then I've got to spend, I've got to spend, um, you know, 50 grand on the refurb. And here's the key question that you ask him. You say, what am I missing, Mark? Yeah. So, you know, what is it that I'm not seeing? Because you might have missed the fact that actually, you know, you can build another story on it or I don't know what it might be. You might not have missed anything, but they'll probably give you some insight. Maybe they'll say, as is often the case, they'll say, yeah, you're dead right, you know, but I just can't get this vendor to see sense. So you say, well, why don't, you know, why don't you just leave it on the market for three months and I'll give you a call about it in three months because we'd like to buy it, but not at that price. So, you know, the age, the, the, the vendor's obviously not going to listen to me that his property's overpriced. He's not going to particularly, he's obviously not listening to you as the agent that it's overpriced, but he might listen to the market. Yeah. And if the market tells him his property is overpriced by sitting on the market for three months with hardly any viewings, that's a good time to go back. Um, so again, at, at, at any point in time with deals, you, you have a pipeline and you, and you, you don't need a complicated system for, for tracking them, but stuff that you've seen that you might want to buy 
but you can't because the price isn't right, you just log it and you check in with the agent however often you feel you need to, every week, every month, in three months' time. Because deals, again, are created over the course of time. So what's not a deal today might be in three months' time because the price has been adjusted, because the vendors realize that it is overpriced. You preempted my next question. I was going to say to you, I know that we look at a lot of stuff, Kim and Kim and myself, and it can be, it's, it's back to that create. I love it how you summed that up. Deals are created. That's so right. We look at stuff and then it might be six, seven months down the line that you actually, that starts to be created. And you, you just preempted that and have a system as well. I think that's the, the key thing, you know, just to keep it, keep notes on everything. And it doesn't have to be like super duper or singing or dancing. It can be a spreadsheet, it can be a notebook, it can be a note on your phone. You know, it's just, I think people forget that, that then, you know, the market has then dictated to that vendor and has changed them without anybody having to do something. Yeah, yeah. And and here's the thing. I mean, again, on the theme of deals being created, that you have to work. You know, this is this is it's very rewarding work, but you have to work. This you know, this doesn't. You don't sit at, and you have to get out of the office. You know, you don't sit at your computer for hours. I meet people that say, "Oh, you know, I've spent four hours on Rightmove looking at deals." <laughs> Great to give you a bit of an insight, but don't do that every day get out and 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 see the agents and because it's people it's about people and um you know you have to be you have to put yourself in that deal flow i think the other key thing in along those lines as well is is you know learn some basic negotiating skills yes you know learn some it doesn't have, you don't have to be like the best negotiator in the world but if you just if you spent, if you went on a one-day course in negotiation, you'd be in the top ten percent of negotiators that are out there trying to do this, and yeah. just some very, very basic negotiating skills. What's your top negotiation tip then? I put you on the spot a little bit there. Got you. Ryan? Hello. Yes, sorry, we're back. Did sorry. You... That was it. Sorry, I was trying to be um that was it's it. silence. You were silence just... is the is the, first the top one to speak loses. Well, not the first one that speaks loses, but as human beings, that uncomfortable silence yeah. has to be filled. Yeah. And so when you're when you're when you're negotiating, it doesn't it, it's not that the first person that speaks loses, but the, the next, if, if you create a silence that the other person fills, they often fill it with useful information. Yeah. And that can be, um, that can be after the, it, 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 it tends to come after the questions that you've asked. So what else have you got? What's the vendor's situation? Why are they really selling? You know, you, you, you end a question with a question mark and the next person that speaks is the other person yeah. and, and you let them talk. And, and um, when they give you the first answer as to why they're really selling, 
or they're they're selling because um, you know they're 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 I don't know they um, they found another property. You stay silent again, and and the agent or the vendor will tend to elaborate a little bit more, and you get the real insight into that. Um, when you put an offer in, you know. So I think the property works for us at two hundred and fifty thousand. Silence after that will give you. Um, some insight into whether that's the right kind of offer or whether they're what they're thinking about but you know two or three seconds of uncomfortable silence um, is often enough to tease that out Um, and then the second thing is is solve problems you know solve problems for in a negotiating stance solve their problem first yeah Um, you know like we did for Mark just solve his problem take the headache away, um, give first. And then, um, you know, so, so th- this was the point I wanted you to remind me about actually pay full asking price. Sometimes it's astonishing, it, absolutely astonishing how much you can get away with once you've paid full asking price. Now I know people will say, well, you're paying for that if you pay full asking price, but in any deal, you know, you can negotiate on price and that's where most people go and it's the most aggressive place to start. Yeah. And so you're immediately on the back foot. You've immediately um, got the vendor feeling like he's got a negotiation on his hands or, or she's in a battle with you. You know, when you go to price first, if you actually give on price first, you, you can physically see it. If you're in the room with someone and, and you, you physically offer the full asking price, providing it works, of course, and providing the, pro- the property is a fair price. You can then negotiate on a whole manner of terms, how you pay, when you pay, whether they'll give you the keys between exchange and completion to allow you to do the works, whether they'll do the works for you, whether they'll um, you know, kick the tenants out or leave the tenants in, whatever you want, whether they'll give you an option to buy it, whether they'll let you... Um, try and rework the planning because you think there's some planning game hundreds and hundreds of scenarios that once you've given on price you can negotiate and it's a much easier negotiation um really powerful very powerful now i wouldn't say give up on price too easily um but don't you know don't immediately you know again i think it's less prevalent now but you know there was a time when you know, everybody was running around trying to do below market values at 25 to 30% below market value. And, and some vendors just can't accept that. It's just as much as they might like to or might want to, it just doesn't work for them. Um, so paying a little bit more on price but getting something in return is very powerful. Yeah, I um, really agree with you there. We've done a, a deal very recently. It's very similar. We paid the, offered to pay the full asking price. And then the, this, it does surprise you the terms in which you can start throwing at the vendor and the, the different scenarios in which you can create to make that deal work for both of them. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's yeah. And then the other thing is I, th- I think there's, there's what we call an OBE, an offer before exit. There's always an offer that you can put on the table before you exit the negotiation. Yeah. And, you know, if the vendor wants 2 million quid for the property, you know, your offer before exit shouldn't be hundred grand. Yeah. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to destroy any credibility that you've built up with agents, but 
there is always, you know, if the property ticks lots of other boxes, but you can't get there on price or terms, I think it's always worth leaving in a very polite and professional manner the vendor or the agent with an offer before you exit. So you say, look, Mark, there's no way we can get to 500,000 for this property, you know, and, and, and the reason is because we got to spend so much more on refurb. Um, you know, there's asbestos through the building. There's, you know, you've got a problem here, you've got a problem there where it would work for us is at 400,000. Um, but we'll, um, you know, we'll complete within, we'll exchange within 14 days and complete within 60 days or something. Um, and I just want to leave that with you. And, um, you know, I'll give you a call in two weeks time just to see whether that's of interest. Um, I expect it's, it's, it's unlikely to be, but I just want to put that on the table. So at least the vendors got an offer from us and you leave it and you put them on your spreadsheet and you track them, not aggressively, Yep. You don't want to track these things too aggressively to the point where you get dragged back into a massive negotiation where you don't want to go. But leaving them with an offer before you exit is, again, a very good way of just filling that pipeline of deals. And it's amazing how many of those deals come back. Yeah. Yeah. Because you've built that rapport with the vendor. You've expressed why you can't do that. And then... And I'm, I've noticed a lot with vendors that I, I do something very similar to that, but I don't call it an OBE. That's smooth. I like that. And it's surprising how many times after six months or so they ring you up and go, oh, I've had some numpties. Come and have a look at it. I ain't got a clue. Do you know what? Yeah. If, if your offer still stands, I'm, I'm good to go. Um, that surprises me how many times that actually happens. Hmm. The best story of this, which is which is all over the net, is when Branson bought Necker Island. Yeah, you know he was it was on the market for five million dollars. He offered hundred thousand dollars, and and he offended the guy that owned it, um, Lord Cobham. You know they kicked him off the island, and and um, you know, but he'd got nothing to lose. Yeah. Um, a few months later, he went back and bought it for hundred eighty thousand dollars. So he. he he, you know, he left them with an offer, yeah. um, you know, kept in touch with the agent, um, you know, and ultimately bought this island that's worth goodness knows how much and, and you know, for less than 4% of the asking price. So Scary, I, think, I think if you, I think you've got to be careful with that strategy, not to just be seen as a time waster because ultimately, I mean, ultimately agents are working for, for well the agents work for themselves first they work for their the seller second and they work for you third but but you're as the buyer you're the reason you're you're the route to them getting their commission so you just got to find that balance of 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 kind of um working with the agents without um without treading over any lines as it were i think that's a fantastic fantastic point to to end on really i'm just gonna go over i've got notes all over this piece of paper and i'm just going to pull out some of the the end the ones to sort of end on and then if there's anything that you want to add to that we will um so the notes in which i've got are that stick close to home be creative you know your deals are made get known to agents and be a problem solver you've got to be in that that deal flow 
and have a system for those deals. Look at complex deals. Look at the agents that have the kind of deals in which you want. And, you know, to know that you've got to be in touch with the key people. And then the, the sort of three big takeaways are the, the question to ask to agents when you've taken them out. What else have you got? And ask that different ways. And then what am I missing? If they've shown you a deal, what am I missing with this deal? I can't get it to work. What am I missing? And then the last one is the, the OBE, which I think is so smooth, which is the offer before exit. Is there anything else you would like to add to that, Nick? No, I think that's good. I think, I think having, a, having a system to analyse deals quickly is, is useful. Just, you know, the more, the more deals you, you look at and analyse, the better you'll get at this. Yeah. You know, we've all made mistakes buying the wrong property. You know, you can't afford to do that too often with property. So, you know, being able to analyse deals quickly um, you know, and, and knowing what's a good deal in amongst, you know, you are looking for needles in haystacks. And so you, you have to kind of pick stuff out that, that looks like a good deal or has the makings of a deal that you can create into a great deal. So having some kind of analysis and then just learning to negotiate, you know, having again, a single day on a negotiating course. I, I don't have a course to sell, by the way. This is usually the point where the speaker tries to sell you a one-day negotiating course. I don't, but there's loads of them. You know, you can, um, you can go to Cass Business School for 999 quid and they do a negotiating course. Again, I don't get commission on that. But, you know, if you do a one-day course on negotiation, you'll be in the top 10% of people out there trying to do this. It's, it's, a, it's a tiny, tiny investment that will pay back innumerate times um but, to have, isn't it? yeah i really appreciate you having me ryan hope it's been useful i'll send you those spreadsheets for anybody that wants them yes um you know wants them yeah and then the book will be out at the end of the year and um you know if you maybe gather up a list of people that that want to get a copy i'll i'll send i'll send those out um yep. hopefully by christmas that is absolutely spot on. I think we'll all agree, everybody listening to this, wherever you are, that that was some absolutely incredible, incredible advice. I thank Nick so much for being on. If anyone wants any of those spreadsheets or to get on the list to get a copy of Nick's book, you can drop me an email, ryan at venturepropertylincoln.co.uk, which is a really long email address, or send me a message on Facebook and I will get all of them compiled on the list and over to Nick and he'll get it out to you. So once again, I'd just like to thank you all for listening and thank Nick for being on here. I will see you all next week. Cheers guys.